0: Today's guest, Daniel Krauss, is a New York Times bestselling author of such books as Rotter's Scowler, The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch, and he's also known for his collaborations with Guillermo del Toro on Trollhunters and The Shape of Water. We discuss how those led to his collaboration with George Romero on the book the living dead and i can tell you that is a real work of art 694 pages of zombie's gore and more and it's been held around the world as a masterpiece we discuss that the difficulties of writing comic books and much more right after this <music> Daniel thank you very much indeed for joining us today Um, so obviously we're here to talk about uh, amongst other things this wonderful book I'm going to make sure that I've actually got this on yeah we are uh, The Living Dead but I'd like to kind of come to that uh, in a little while and I you'll notice that I have I've bookmarked something because I'd just like to share a little bit of it later on with everybody um, there's no spoilers, it's halfway through. Um, so what I w- wondered was, was when did you first start writing?
1: Well, for me, it really started uh, incredibly young, maybe first grade. Uh, so, you know, we're talking six, seven years old. Right. Uh, I had a friend, it really started with a friend of mine. I lived in a small town in the middle of the country. And uh, a friend who lived in my neighborhood Uh, started drawing pictures of monsters, just, you know, made up monster sort of Godzilla type uh, creatures. And so I started doing it too. And so we both had our figures of monsters. And I think what happened was eventually we wanted something to do with them. And so we started writing stories where the monsters would attack each other. And so, you know, I I just kept going with that. Eventually he kind of lost interest and stopped Um, writing in that in that kind of way but I kept going and I uh, continued to just write stories and eventually introduced some human characters and uh, you know by the time I was in middle school I was writing what would be considered novella type length stuff Um, and then certainly by high school I was writing novel length things and these weren't these weren't uh, projects that I was showing anyone. They, they were just, you know, for me. Uh, And so I was, it wasn't, and this has served me well in my career. I was never writing for praise or anything like that. I was writing just because it was something that I found really enjoyable. And when I finished a book or a novella or a project, I would just kind of feel happy about it. And then I would put it in a drawer and that'd be it.
0: So, do you have any, or have you gone back to those pieces yeah. of work and done well, them, brought them well,
1: up? Well, recently, uh, the University of Pittsburgh acquired all my archives, um, so I did have a chance just in the past year to to unpack some boxes and look at some of this stuff. Uh, now, when I my books today often gestate for a really long time, so uh, I'll have. I have story ideas that began when I was a kid that have become novels when I was an adult. So uh, among that, the material that I um, sent to Pittsburgh was a short story that I wrote when I was probably 12 or something. Um, And that became the uh, sort of genesis of a novel that I wrote many years later. So a lot of those not a lot, but a few of those nuggets that I came up with back then really have stayed with me. And, um, I have turned them into, to real projects, you know, generally when I went through and kind of scanned the work, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, I was a kid, it's rough stuff. Uh, but it was impressive in some ways, you know, mostly in the, in the amount of material that I created. Um, I was, I'm a prolific author now. And I, and I was then too. Uh, it's just it, the, just the, the volume of material is kind of impressive.
0: It, it certainly sounds like very, I think I, I kind of remember starting to write page, you know, I, I definitely completed one short story as a teenager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I wrote those teenage poems that no one is ever going to see because they're, terrible.
1: Yeah. I was lucky enough to not ever write any teenage poetry. I don't know how I dodged that bullet, but I did. (laughs) Who did
0: anyone encourage you to write particularly?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, my mom was, she used to credit for a lot of my career. Um, she was someone who encouraged it. Again, I wasn't really showing these stories to anyone, including her, but she of course knew that I was writing them and, um, was very supportive and I had a a teacher in middle school who uh, was supportive and it was, she had the first class that I'd ever encountered that was, um, that was really centered around creative writing, which, you know, and at that time in this state was pretty uh, experimental. Mm. Um, It, but, so that was exciting to actually be in a class where I could actually do some writing and that which I was doing anyway and actually get grades for it. Uh, but I used it more of as a workshop. Like I, I still did my, what I considered my serious writing at home. Right. And then use this class to experiment with different forms and voices and stuff. Uh, but, but again, although I had some, some encouragement, um, there, there wasn't a ton of it partly because I wasn't looking for it. And partly because I don't think it was considered a viable career path at all, uh, I, and I certainly didn't consider it one either. It was—I didn't know any working artists. I didn't know anyone who knew any working artists. I mean, it was just it in that small town. It it wasn't a really a possibility. So it it was it was really just kind of a, a something i was passionate about as a as a hobby i never really thought it could be a career
0: right 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 and so you were kind of right also writing monsters from a very early age mm-hmm. which kind of which is a theme throughout your work i think having looked at some of your other work um <clears throat> i'm being re- absolutely fascinated by the stuff that you're dealing with but which seems to be a lot about coming of age mm-hmm. looking it's is is that a very deliberate choice, or is that just the way it happens? That this sounds like a really cool idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's not really a deliberate choice. Um, I I have tended to write a lot about um, teenagers or uh, um, people who are at least younger, um, um, and that that again is not something that I'm setting out to do. But th- there's something about uh, the stories that are right there, I tend to, to gravitate towards those characters. Um, and I can't say why, then it doesn't, that's not the case for all my books, but no. um, there it's one of those kind of ineffable things where I don't really know why. Um, but I, I just, I, I just keep returning um, in, in such a way that even I've started books writing in the characters 35 or something and by the time I, I get done with it, um, they're 18. You know, for some reason, I find myself uh, coming back to that, that age range quite a bit.
0: But, but yes, that's really interesting. I think I've, I've heard of writers writing, for example, writing all their characters as men and mm-hmm. then just changing some of the names to women. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they're fairly instinctual things when we create stuff. So a lot of the stuff you write is scary, and certainly there are some very scary moments in this book. What scares you?
1: Well, in art, very little scares me. I think as growing up as a as a kid, uh, I certainly got scared by movies um, and books, just like any kid does. Mm-hmm. Um, and even had periods where I, I really couldn't watch or... Um, I just couldn't stomach it when I was, you know, an adolescent, maybe. Today, in in art, I'm almost never, ever scared. Um, it's it's extremely rare uh, for me to, to read something and be scared by it. Um, extremely rare to watch a movie and be scared by it. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't really enjoy them. You know, uh, I really do. I still, you know, horror is still probably my favorite genre of all. Um, but you know, things in real life scare me a lot, you know, like it's, it's one of those kind of classic situations where, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm a human being. So I see things all the time that scare me. The news is terrifying on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you have to try to control that. You'll just be a mess 24 seven. So it's, there's to, to. To persist in life today, you need to be able to constantly be able to control your fear and your panic and I think one way to maybe and this is just a theory to exercise those muscles of control is to um, to partake in art that challenges you right um, You know, as a young kid, I would see something really scary, a TV show or a movie. And uh, I'd run away and feel ill or whatever, but I'd always come back to it. Like I'd always challenge myself again and say, I'm going to watch that movie again and see if I can take it. And I think there's probably something to that. You're, there's a, the kind of person who would just never look at it again. And then there's me who would constantly test my, my limits. And I think that's maybe helps with staying calm when things really do go wrong in life.
0: It's interesting, I remember probably about two months into lockdown over here, so we're talking probably around about the beginning of June, they published a, a an article, it was an article in The Guardian over here saying, yeah, people who like horror movies and are preppers, etc, are doing much better in the current mm-hmm. situation than people who don't, because They've exercised those muscles, basically, mm-hmm. you know they know how to deal with it. I remember you know the times when I was saying, "Oh you can't show the horror scary movies to kids or anything like that and I think they love it they re- yeah. you know they really enjoy it because how do you learn how do you learn to deal with emotions otherwise yeah
1: you need, you need some a safe way to test your limits, and there's really not much safer than uh uh movie or a book. Mm, Like, you know, mm. you can turn away from those. You can close the book. It's a perfectly safe way to test your limits. Um, I am I am fully in favor of kids watching and reading horror. Um I did it from a very young age, five or six years old. My mom was having me watch horror stuff with her. And uh but she wasn't like strapping me down. (laughs) You know, I I could (laughs) I could I could leave if I wanted to. And I'm sure that I did. Uh, but it being able to from a young age being able to test my limits like that um was extremely uh self-educating and informative about what I was and what I wasn't and mm-hmm. uh things uh things and ideas that I could engage with that are that were outside the everyday norm and I um I actually think that that partaking in horror actually really can stir the creativity. It doesn't mean you need to go on to become a horror author or a horror Mm -hmm. filmmaker. You could write romance, but I think uh, something about testing your limits early, which horror is good at can really uh, lead to creativity as an adult, just because you've tested your limits.
0: Yes. Yeah. I I always remember the moment that I discovered that i and this is probably in my late 30s early 40s i discovered i developed a fear of heights again mm-hmm. it was when i walked up to looking down on a courtyard from the first gallery um what i think of as um a, a first floor americans think of as second floor uh, and just looking down and just thinking, I've got this fear back again. What can, you know, And I, I thought I'd overcome this. I remember going and basically going up the Eiffel Tower. Mm. To, you know, And actually having to visit it twice because they closed off the top section the first time I visited. And just, it was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. But after an hour or so at the very, very top of the Eiffel Tower, looking down, it's like, okay, I've got this now. I can, yeah, I can deal with this. And it does help you deal with other stuff, you think, okay, if I can overcome this, I can overcome that, that
1: good. yeah, I mean that's impressive because I, I do think it's harder to do as an adult. I think when you're a kid it's it kind of comes naturally and your brain is just in sort of absorption mode, and you're constantly in in everything you do, sort mm-hmm. of figuring out what you're afraid of, what you're not, what you can overcome. I think it's harder as an adult i think it's if you're scared of heights and you're you know in your thirties or something i think it's it's tough. It's like you yeah. know too too much. You know too much yeah. about, your, about yourself. It's harder to trick yourself as an adult. Um, so that's impressive.
0: Well, well, f- f- thank you. I mean, I'm, i I was very interested to read online that um, London Zoo allows people who are arachnophobes to mm. come in and meet tarantulas. Wow! And they reckon they can do it within about a week. They can cure people of arachnophobia. Wow! Within. Just by introducing them, you know, I think so. A lot of it, when you're thinking about something the side of a tarantula, you're probably thinking, scare of the unknown. This is a thing you don't normally encounter. You know? mm-hmm. But also, if you can actually deal with that big thing, then you can deal with the little house spider running
1: across. Right. The, yeah, right. Across the thing.
0: Okay, cool. Well, thank you very much for uh, sharing that with us. So, you're writing, you're, scowlers rotters the monsters variations and then you did the troll hunters with guillermo del toro how did that when did you meet guillermo del toro
1: well i met him on that project uh he had read rotters my book my two books previous to that right and uh really liked it and he had um he had a publishing deal in place for troll hunters as a novel um and was kind of casting around for a co-author for it. And it was uh, about kids. And I had written a couple, I'd written at that point, three books about, not, not kids really, but teenagers. The, mm-hmm. the characters in Troll Hunters were a little younger. Um, so I was, uh, I think I was kind of in the right place at the right time. He had read Rotter's recently and thought that uh, I might be the, the right person to pair with for that. So it was pretty simple, you know, um, I think, you know, he, he, uh, we, you know, we sent him and his manager my other work and he liked it. And then, uh, we talked on the phone maybe a bit and I flew to Toronto and we met there and we, um, kind of hashed out the, the plot of the book. A lot of it he already had, but, um, uh, had a bunch of questions we, we figured it out and that was it. And that's how, that's how we got into business together.
0: Wow. And obviously really enjoyed it because you then went on to do The Shape of Water.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that, and that came about because of Trollhunters because we were working on Trollhunters and I had mentioned to him this idea I had for uh, um, what I thought at that point would be a book, The Shape of Water, which did ultimately become a book and movie. Um, And uh, he loved it and he optioned the idea. Um, And then a few years later, actually made the movie and we wrote the book and so yeah a lot happened in the first time first day we met we did, we accomplished a lot
0: <laughs> which how do you find collaborating with people obviously with Georgia is a slightly different story but um I think really Guillermo is the only person really collaborated with mm-hmm. how do you find that in how how is that different apart from the obvious things to it's, writing just for yourself?
1: Yeah, it, it it's definitely different. Um, when I write alone and I always try to set up certain um, challenges for myself. And that's a, that's a way of not of making sure I don't write the same thing over and over again. I think when you're starting out, you don't worry about that as much because you're, you're really just sort of figuring out how to write a novel, what that feels like. Hmm. Um but as you get into, you know, book seven or eight, you know, you, you run the danger of repeating yourself or just, you know, it feels just like a Daniel Krauss book, you want to shake yourself up. So I tend to to create problems for myself, like this book is only is going to be written in this particular voice, or this book's gonna be written in this um, format that's somehow restraining. And it kind of forces me to change up how I write and um, not get into a, any kind of comfortable space. With collaboration, that's kind of baked into the, the the model because you're going to have somebody else who's offering ideas and they're not always going to jive with yours or they're going to come at things from a different angle. Uh, and that's going to force you to think creatively and find different ways to solve problems and find ways to feel passionate about someone else's idea that they came up with instead of you and vice versa. So it's, and and even though the the romero project was um different because george wasn't with us uh, still there were ways that i could i found to create that kind of mm. push and pull which is which is really what you want otherwise i don't know why you're collaborating like you want you want that sense of two two or uh at least two voices um trying to come up with something that's a third voice
0: right right I, and actually something i possibly should advance earlier on but what i find interesting how do you structure your books do you thinking in how you're Mm -hmm. writing yourself do you just think okay this is a really cool idea these are really cool characters go or do Mm -hmm. you spend some time this is my story arc i'm going Mm -hmm. to now hang this scene oh that's a cool scene right what's your kind of process
1: generally i do uh lots of planning uh, often it's like often the sort of spark of an idea and you just start writing that does happen um and usually that's uh just to to see if this idea feels good once you've got it on the page Um, but that I usually don't go very far with that. You know, I'll, I'll, I might write kind of off the top of my head for a little bit, but then once I'm like, okay, this is, I've got something here. Then I usually stop and do a lot of planning. And again, you know, I have ideas. Most of my novels are ideas that I've thought about for a really long time. Some of them decades, um, always at least years. So, um, I spent a a lot of time thinking about them. and then do usually quite extensive outlines. You know, if it's a book like, if it's a large book like Living Dead, um, definitely do Mm. a a lot of structural outlines. There's a lot of intricate timeline things going on. If it's a historical novel, um, you'll get into a big mess if you don't take note of um, uh, just sort of global events and that kind of thing. Uh, So I I do, usually I do quite a bit of planning and my outlines alone can be 50, 75, 100 pages. Um, so, and uh, if and if they're complicated, I also have very complicated timelines to go with that. And I actually, I don't feel that's constraining at all. I think some people when they hear that, they think, oh, that doesn't sound much fun. But it actually, uh, you know, I spend months and years doing that work so that when I actually set to writing, I can feel completely free and not have to worry about, um, am I going down a wrong path that I'm going to spend 300 pages that I'm going to have to throw away? Instead, I can just really focus on the language and how the sentences work. And, and, um, and you never really strictly strict, stick to the outline anyway. You always end up going a little afield. Uh, so I found that it's actually quite liberating and leads to better writing for me.
0: And now that I know a few writers, um, funnily enough, different generation, uh, to you, um, probably you started writing in the seventies, uh, the ones I'm thinking of, um, my baits basically. And back then we had manual typewriters, we had mm-hmm. pen, pen and paper. And one of them I know, uh, is very, even today when he writes, he writes pen and paper. He's never mm-hmm. really adopted. What about yourself? You, a millennial child. <laughs> that's, that's,
1: uh no, I'm not I'm not uh, that young, but um yeah, I type it 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 is interesting like uh most writers I know uh who who don't write longhand, you know, our our writing muscles are just weak. Like and I can't write longhand very long before my my hand just aches. Like we don't have that that muscle anymore. Mm. Right? It's it's like a physical thing. Um I take a lot of notes. Uh, longhand, like I have, uh, if they're over there, but I just take copious notes constantly um, on these little notebooks. So I, I do have some, some moderate exercise I'm doing there. But I know authors who are my age who do write longhand, and their reasons for doing so are compelling. Uh, it, it does certainly slow you down. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're, uh, you're putting probably more thought into each word because it it takes a few seconds to write a long word and so you know I think there is something to it and I've always been tempted to to try it um, particularly my ideas that are historical you know so if I'm writing a, a book that takes place in the 1800s or something I'm intrigued by the idea of writing a longhand just to see if there's you know this would be as I was saying before where I give mm. myself certain sort of problems and challenges I think it'd be uh, interesting to see if that led to a certain different kind of writing style.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Okay, cool. Um, so let's move on to this wonderful book, which I so enjoyed as I was saying to you earlier on, I only finished it this afternoon um, because it was, and uh, thank you very much indeed Audible. Um because that helped a lot with being able to just to listen to stuff whilst I was out on the road. Um, and I have to say the fact that audible will allow you to speed things up mm-hmm. and you can actually listen to it even faster than that. I found very useful as well. Um, what's the story? I, I mean, I know the backstory of this, but for those of you people who don't, how did you get involved?
1: Well, it's a, it's a both a short story and kind of a long story. Um, uh, long and sort of time span. Uh, I knew, uh, Chris Rowe, a manager, uh, you know, very well. Yeah. Um, from way back, way back. We're talking, uh, we went to the same high school in the same small town in Iowa. So, um, the fact that we both grew up to work in the arch is pretty incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, we weren't best friends or anything, but we were certainly friendly. Um, and then, you know, we graduated, went off our separate ways. And then many years later, I don't know, 20 years, I don't know. Um, I was reading an article about George Romero, who was my absolute hero, my favorite artist in any art form. And I noticed uh, that in the article, they thank his manager, uh, Chris Farrell. And I thought, is there any chance this could be the same guy? um so i sort of sought him out it turns out it was um and we reconnected um uh briefly and he was like look next time i'm in town with with uh george i'll let you know we can get together and um a few months later he was and so i um i came down to the convention center where they were and um and i uh you know it was great to see chris again and um uh met george uh, which was the only time I ever met him in person. And, you know, we certainly weren't talking business. We were, it was just a social visit, just chit-chatting in the hotel room. Um, and then that was kind of it. That, and then, again, we all went our separate ways. And then about 10 years later, uh, 10 or 12 years later, uh, George died in 2017. And um, maybe a month after that, I got a call from Chris. And again, it, it been another decade has passed since I've heard from him. And it was, um, he and Suze, George's wife, were going through some of his projects that were left unfinished. And he sort of first and foremost among them was this, uh, big zombie epic novel that he had been working on for about 10 years on and off. Um, and it was, you know, important to him and seemed to be an integral piece of this zombie story that he, invented in 1968 and were working on for 50 years and this was um an important part of that that story and they were wondering if i would be interested in taking a whack at finishing it i think um i mean he wasn't just saying that because i knew him when we were kids uh i you know at that point i had become you know somewhat successful as an author and and i think had done a couple successful collaborations with Guillermo del Toro um, but one thing Chris knew about me, in addition to all that stuff, which was public knowledge, is that I was a, I was more than a fan of George. I was a real um, student of his. And it—and this became important to him and his wife, uh, him and uh, George's wife. Um, I wasn't, it, I wasn't obsessed with his, just his zombie movies. You know, I was, I was deeply interested in all of his, his work. And I, again, I was a real student of it. I really studied the films. I, re, I read all the scholarly analyses of them. And um, George uh, really changed how I grew up as a, as a kid. You know, Night of Living Dead was the first film I remember seeing. I'm sure I saw things before that, but it's the first movie that I, I remember having an impact on me at age like six or something. Um, and his movies really affected me as a person growing up and then as uh, certainly as an artist later um they meant everything to me he was a real father figure to me so uh i had a deep understanding and love for his work um so all those things put together they they decided i would be a good candidate to do this um i was of course stunned uh, uh at the opportunity um uh, and I said yes, uh, absolutely. Um, although there was, you know, certain trepidation to to getting involved with somebody who was my my hero and who was so important to me. Um, and considering this was one of his final works, there there was a lot of responsibility involved with that. Um, but it, you know, you, I don't think. You can't say no to something like that. It felt like the the completing of a giant circle that began when I was five or six years old uh, with Night Living Dead, and now here was this sort of other bookend to his zombie tale, and I was going to get to become a part of it. So that's sort of the backstory of how it happened.
0: And I happen to know that you were the first person that Chris mm-hmm. thought of when you know when he was thinking about this and. Um, I know they reached out, um, really quite, it was within a month or so. Yeah, it was, it was
1: George's qu- passing. It was pretty quick. And, uh, and, uh, it really came out of the, the blue because we weren't, you know, you know, we weren't really hadn't been in touch in a long mm-hmm. time. Um, but I, I was uh, slightly aware he had been working on it. Like every once in a while in an interview, George would mention that he was working on a, a, a book. But there was never a lot of information about it, and um, people didn't, you know, pick up on it that much. But I, I so when he when he said I, there was this uh, zombie novel that George had been writing, it did trigger something in my head. I was like, yeah, that's right. I did read about him working on this giant um, novel, just because I was a, a you know, a fanatic for anything anything reported on what George was working on. Um so yeah I mean it it it, may, it means a, a a lot to me yeah. to that they they thought of me for this um and my my goal throughout was to not screw it up and to to treat it as seriously as you might treat an unfinished Rembrandt or something like like mm-hmm. to to treat it like an extremely important work of art and I, and I was my plan was to bring everything I could to the table Um, and reaches deep into his work and his life as possible to inform writing the parts that weren't there.
0: Right. So it's interesting, you mentioned earlier on, you touched on earlier on, that he'd had a, obviously you'd seen Night of the Living Dead when you were very young, but this effect became an interest which you pursued kind of through the rest of your life. By scholarly articles, was it just the films? I I guess it was just the films Mm -hmm. because that's mostly what George was known for. Yeah, what what was it that most inspired you about George's work?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's hard to, to say. Uh, as I think it was when I was really young and really, you know, for the first however many years of my life, it was really just Night Living Dead. So, this was pre VHS, really. So, it'd be a while till I saw anything else. Um, I think it was kind of like we were speaking about it earlier. It was shocking. Um, it, I think it, the, the, it's a story that's simple enough for a kid to understand. Like I think a kid understands that the home is supposed to be a safe space and there are things outside the home are scary. And that's essentially the plot of Nightly Dead. Um, but, but then of course there was that, um, the moment at the end where Ben gets shot that was like I don't think as a, a a kid I understood that you could do that in a movie you know that you could I'd probably seen you know Disney movies and stuff before then like I didn't understand that you could you could have this heroic character you know and I was probably surrounded by cartoons and movies superheroes and He-Man and whatever Star Wars and you just didn't do that you just didn't senselessly, cruelly kill your your protagonist, your hero. Um, I think that really opened my mind to the potential power of art. Um, uh, if you could do that, man, you could, I mean, all bets are off. You can do anything. I think um, I was, even from a young age, I was tantalized or fascinated by um, uh, dark um, endings. I was fascinated by uh, a certain element of bleakness. Um, I liked, and I responded to also in various Twilight Zone episodes. Which were the other thing that I consumed a lot of as a kid it was basically Night Living Dead and Twilight Zone. Like certain Twilight Zone episodes, um, Romero's films, especially his zombie films, were about groups of people um, in. Sort of trapped in single locations, and um, they sort of end up uh, squabbling and end up destroying themselves. Sort of ir- ir- you know, ir- irrespective to what else mm-hmm. is happening. You know, whatever the threat was supposed to be, the threat was actually inside, not outside. So I think all that stuff fascinated me, and you know, the fact that I had George Amiro and Rod Serling as my um, um, artistic. Beacons was fortunate um, because they were they were progressive people. They were interested in social justice, they were interested in in um, ideas of um, class and race and all these things that I think immediately began to work on me subconsciously. I grew up in Midwestern, small town midwestern uh, the state of Iowa in uh, America. so we're talking a small, town uh, almost everyone's white um probably pretty conservative so having these more uh, progressive artists sort of guiding my way i think really changed uh, who i was as a person so i'm really thankful for that grateful for that and feel lucky
0: right right it's it is fascinating and i think it's something that comes across in the novel and there's just I, I loved it I really, I was reading <laughs> it this afternoon not trying to get to the end not just because I had a deadline I needed to meet, but just because it's a page turner it's like oh don't oh, please please no I want them it's it's there is a lot going on I think what I really liked about and appreciated it you have captured George's interest in society and the way society behaves and
1: what I find
0: fascinating reading it today, and you could not have foreseen this in the slightest, was how it relates to our current situation in mm-hmm. terms of the pandemic, in terms of politics, in the in terms of the way people are behaving. I was reading this and I was also reading about the um, wildfires that are going on in the West of your country and the fact the one reporter was saying that you know he was out he was trying to do coverage, and he happened to be with a reporter of color, and they came across men with guns not wearing badges, but very obviously blocking the road, supposedly protecting the township that was being threatened by the fire and I think it's that kind of thing that is reflected so well uh in this book and i want to share with you if i may just something because it just completely made me physically laugh out loud whilst i was um listening to this um and this is about a character uh, called etta hoffman i got that reference immediately to the tales of hoffman um I thought nice naming of that but there was this bit um, because basically this lady is recording stories uh, of the people and how they're experiencing the zombie apocalypse and the ones that uh, she's talking about here were housewives forming covens as a means of survival. Stopgap police forces burning citizens to contain what they suddenly believed was a biological agent. A young man encouraged by the chaos to play out delusions of vampirism. A troop of Renfair Renfair motorcyclists who believe their their Arthurian code could withstand any strain. A paraplegic man trapped indoors, tortured by his helper monkey, begging her to send help. Such strange tales, and Hoffman read them over and over. One day they might remind us who we used to be and who we tried to be, and the, that recollection could save the world.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> it's something I think, but I thought what I found interesting, particularly in that, is the power of story. Yeah. Because this character plays such a vital role. Was this something that George had put in? originally
1: no that bit was definitely me um there's 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 little bits of the book here and there that reflect there are my homage to george mm-hmm. that reflect george as a person um uh and relationships that he had and some of the life he lived That's all sort of woven into the plot as well um and you know his phrase as i said you know dramatically affected who i am and now I'm in a position where my stories can dramatically affect other people. So the power of stories is something that um, and George would would have been far too humble to to put this in the book. Uh, but they they can change uh, you know one person, I can talk to someone today and and maybe change you know the way that their life is going. It'd be amazing if that happened. But when you create a work of art, It it has the power to change a lot of people's minds. Um, So that section, which is, of course, referencing a bunch of other George Romero films, um, is my way of kind of acknowledging that uh, these things are important. Mm. Um, And these stories, uh, even when times are dark, as they are in this book, or as they kind of are right now in real life, these things can guide us and these things can inspire us and and point us in the right directions. If we have the right leaders, and I think George was one, um, if we keep the eyes, our eyes on them, um, we can, we can get out of this darkness. We can, we can have hope for a a brighter day. Um, yeah, I got little kind of goosebumps when you read that it's not often that I would get goosebumps of something that I (laughs) wrote myself, but, um, yeah, it 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 kind of makes me, it makes me think again about um, how important his work is, and mm. not just his work, people's work mm. uh, is to other people, and the stories, uh, uh, stories are going to be what sustain us.
0: I think you're absolutely right, I'm totally, I, and I think the only way we are going to get through, because stories, every you know, every, the stories that we are told by politicians, mm-hmm. the stories we're told by you know the whole thing about fake news Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we live in such challenging times and being able to actually understand how that whole process works i think is really important for people now and what those and what the risks are um in not understanding those lessons so as i say i really love this book i only finished it this afternoon i kind of like I want to go back and reread it again more slowly now, just because yeah. apart from anything else, I really enjoyed the characters.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and apart from anything else, I've actually already just purchased Troll Hunters as well, because I would read that um, as, and that's really one of the, I want to read your other books, but the, the only reason was that I had to have stumbled across Troll Hunters on Netflix
1: mm-hmm.
0: a few months back. And I've been watching that very avidly and really enjoying that. Well, this will, It'll
1: be interesting to you because uh the book is very different. Um, mm. the, the the show was adapted from the book, but the book is uh, tonally a lot different. The characters are a little older. It's uh, much darker. Um, it's uh, far less funny. It's still a little funny, but um, so it'll be, it's, it, it's an interesting comparison.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I always find very interesting when one learns about these things and think, oh, okay, oh, it's based on a book. I wonder what's that's like. And I love the fact that they're very different because I think they're very different pieces of art mm-hmm. aimed at different audiences uh, primarily. But, yes, yeah, so that's the first one. But I, having read all the blurbs on your other books, I was like, oh, yeah. Really like the gravedigger idea and the yeah yeah uh, and and the other ones.
1: And, well, you know, my interest in George Romero is is proven by the a book I wrote called um, Empire Decade, which is the second. I wrote a two book series called The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch, which takes place over a hundred years. And um, there's a section in the '60s where um, the main character uh, begins thinking. That Night of the Living Dead, which is a new movie at that point in time, uh, is sending secret messages to him in the same way that the that um, uh, Charles Manson thought the White Album was sending yeah. messages to him. Yeah. Yeah. This person feels the same thing about Night of the Living Dead, uh, and it becomes sort of a, an important piece of the plot. So, even before this book that I worked on, uh, I was already working uh, Romero's stuff into my into my novels.
0: Wow! Wow! Uh, yes, that's the other one I, I really want to look at as well, because it does sound absolutely fascinating. Um, moving on, what else have you got um, coming up? I noticed well, you put up on Instagram a little sketch for a graphic. A graphic novel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I assume is this autumnal?
1: Uh, no. No, um, another one. So, yeah. So uh, the things I have coming out is I have this book coming out. Um, as of this recording, it comes out in a few days, but by the time this right. goes live, this will be out. <clears throat> and this is um, the first book of a trilogy. And this is for kids. This is for maybe grades four to six. Right. It's called uh, the, the trilogy is called The Teddy's Saga. And the first one is They Threw Us Away. And right. it is indeed about teddy bears, but it's a, it's a fairly dark story that um, follows the journey of these teddy bears who wake up in a trash dump, a landfill, and they don't know why they were thrown away because they're brand new. And so they, st- they s- kind of embark on this long three book journey of uh, trying to figure out why this happened. Um, and then I have The Autumnal, as you mentioned, it's as a comic book, eight issue comic that starts um, at the end of September. And then, uh, Everything beyond that, there are several other projects going, but none of them are announced yet, but one of right. them yeah, is there's one of them is a graphic novel um, and then there's some other books and uh, some other stuff too, so other media um, but those haven 't been announced yet, so you just have to wait
0: right <laughs> 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 i what I found fascinating was the 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 way that you did this because I wrote uh comics. Um, back in the 90s and I remember Mm -hmm. having to in those days it was like having to plan out all the different pages and working out if I got you know how do the pages physically turn yeah
1: that's before we started this call I was literally working on it and there's um there's so much it's such a different kind of thinking that you don't get in novels you don't get in screenplays even where you're, you're thinking about just chunks of content and how do they break on a page and how do they break on a panel and how do they break on a page turn? Um, it's a, it's a, the rhythm is, is so much more intricate. Mm-hmm.
0: It's fun. I found it challenging. I also found it terribly terribly good exercise because it's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is a story I want to tell. How can I get it? How can I make it as concise, but yeah. also use the power of image. Courtesy of
1: yeah, the artist. It's all about being concise and it's, um, and then you have to free yourself up to take advantage of the form um, where, and it's something I learned in the autumnal um, that, you know, I don't think any other format movies, whatever can, can, can jump uh, sort of temporal can make temporal jumps mm. or uh, geographic jump jumps you know someone can be talking and suddenly while they're talking you can show something from their past or something that's happening in some other part of the world and it just magically works whereas uh in a movie you'd have to sort of establish that in a different way in, a, in books you it's much more difficult you'd have to explain what the heck you're doing uh so there's yeah there's a lot of it that's unique and um inspiring definitely yeah.
0: it's it's fun well we're nearly at the end of our hour um, but I did want to wrap up by just asking you a few questions. Uh, sure. Section title, The Luggage in the Crypt. So you're about to take your, far, your last journey and you've been told you have to bring along your own entertainment. What film would you
1: take? This one is tough because I mean, you're, I'm tempted to be really pragmatic about these answers. And I'm like, all right, I want to take a really long, complicated film because I'm going to be stuck with it. So I want something that's like five hours long. Uh, but that, those are the kind of answers that are less fun. Uh, I mean, really the, the movie that I've seen more than any, and that is truly my favorite movie of all time is Night Living Dead. I just, I never stopped um, watching that. and never stopped being inspired and comforted by it, strangely. Um, I had to pick an, another movie besides that just, that just feels like home to me it's probably the wicker man uh which is just a film that i i really love and um find uh i'm just i feel very affectionate towards it there's some there's a, an odd kind of warmness to it that i've always responded to even though it's got this kind of chilling uh, element <laughs> to it
0: this is this is not a description i'm this is a great choice. I, you know, uh, <laughs> or the choice I've never heard the word warm associated with the worker man before.
1: Well, I kind of always feel like I, I, I kind of want to live on some They're so happy. They're these like totally <laughs> satisfied pagans. I mean, just, it seems like there's, they, they got, they got a good life going there. In island.
0: That's very true actually. Yeah, and yeah, living away on an Island, I think particularly at the moment, <clears throat> The idea of living away on the island where everyone gets on terribly well. Everyone knows how everything works. They've got the harvest coming in. And yeah, that sounds pretty good at the moment.
1: Yeah, my bad. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay. What book would you take with you?
1: I think I would take, you know, They Threw Us Away, which I just referenced, is my homage to one of my favorite books, um, Watership Down. And, uh, when I was maybe in middle school, so that was probably, probably again, probably around 12 years old or so, and I was really into Stephen King and I read something that he wrote where he talked about how much he loved Watership Down. At that point, um, you know, this is pre-internet, I didn't know what it was, um, but he's, you know, he referenced that it was about rabbits and it made no sense to me. Why would he, why would Stephen King be interested in this book about rabbits so i went to the library and of course a very small library but famous books so they had it um and i read it and just loved it and th- and i and i i understood what what king uh, loved about it it was this kind of lord of the rings style epic but done with these these vulnerable little characters um and so my Teddy's saga is similar they're they're on this big dark journey but they're extremely vulnerable. Teddy bears are even more vulnerable than rabbits. Uh, that book is one that is extremely, it, again, is a very comforting book to me, and I've read it many times, and we'll read it again. And, I love, and it's and it's very deep. Uh, it's got it's got its own uh, wonderful mythology, um, and it's just a a brilliant, brilliant book that I think I. I could spend most of eternity enjoying. (laughs)
0: It's I'm trying to remember. I certainly seen the film. And I think I read the book, but of course, it's that image from the Mm -hmm. film that I immediately, the animated film. Yeah. Uh, And I think they've done a number of different versions of it. Um, I think there's a more recent version of it that came out.
1: uh, Yeah. But that original animated film was is pretty great. Yeah.
0: It, yeah. Again, it's, I think it's traumatized. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean that this, I mean, my book will do the same. I mean, it's, it's gonna, there are going to be kids who uh it's a little too intense for it and But they'll, you know, they'll stop reading it if it's too intense for them.
0: Yeah. absolutely. And other
1: people will be totally inspired by it and it'll stick with them because it was kind of intense and they'll someday write their own books.
0: Which is a great outcome, is a great outcome, as far as I'm concerned. What musical album would you take with you?
1: There's a couple ways I could go with this. I think I'm going to go with a sort of uh, for lack of a better better term, this kind of uh, indie rock album uh, called alien Lanes" by Guided by Voices," who are uh, my favorite band for most of my life. Uh, not that they are anymore, but you know. Uh, my taste of diversified. But uh, they were probably the, you know, if I had to say, what was in my life, you know, my last journey, what was my favorite band? It was Guided by Voices. And um, they were, uh, in, in that era anyway, they were uh, kings of extreme lo fi. So they would just record their albums on boomboxes or whatever. Like it was extremely low resolution. And that was inspiring at that time, this idea that you could make this great art just on your own. Um, you could just do it yourself. And I think that inspired a lot of my attitude towards art, you know, because that's how I wrote my books as a kid. I just did it entirely myself and didn't show any, it to anyone, didn't feel the need to. So I like the idea of just being able to create um, and the creation itself being rewarding, not the reception. Uh, you could tell these uh, this band was having just the greatest time of their life recording this in their basement. Um, And they weren't caring too much about uh, how, what the reception was. And I've always hoped to have that sort of model in my own creative life.
0: Right. Right. I shall look forward to checking that out. That sounds, I've heard of guided by voices. I swear I've heard Mm -hmm. at least one of their tracks. I can't name it, but I know I've heard of that band. So I shall go and check that out. What about a favorite food?
1: Favorite food. Um, this one's really hard cause I'm not a real food person. Um, there's not something I would immediately, right. uh, come to mind here. Um, in, uh, I always think back to when I was a kid and how, uh, how I'd always, and I still kind of do this. I'd have a bowl of cereal before I went to bed. Uh, so again, I, a lot of my answers to you have, for this final journey have been ones of comfort. Like, what's a, what's something that I wouldn't mind um, kind of snuggling down with for eternity? Mm. And I think a good old fashioned bowl of cereal might be it.
0: That sounds great. I I do the same every so often. There is, you know, it it feels slightly wrong, uh-huh. but <laughs> that's part of the enjoyment, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's like. Can do this. I'm an adult. If I want to eat muesli at nine o'clock at night, I am allowed to do this. now
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> what about what a piece of visual art you take with you?
1: This one I also found find difficult to. I'm looking around at the various pieces of art in my um, office here. You know, and it's right there is a, a photograph that the aforementioned Chris Rowe took of George and I the one time we met. Right. Um, and, uh, that, you know, I might say that like, it's, uh, it's, I'm not a big, like, uh, fan type of person. I'm not somebody who, uh, you know, gets people's autographs and takes pictures. Um, I think that's, that's, that stuff is awesome, but for whatever reason that I don't have that, I don't have a collector gene in me. No, um, no. So I don't tend to collect things. I tend to get rid of, I'm the opposite. I, I tend to get rid of everything constantly. Uh, I have to stop myself from getting rid of stuff. But this is, you know, this was a special uh, kind of memory to me, especially now that we, had, George and I, ended up kind of collaborating in a way. Mm. Um, and it is sort of a, a visual memory of that, uh, as cheesy as it sounds. Like your kind of weirdest, wildest dreams can come true.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's a great choice, a very good choice. And what about one luxury?
1: Luxury. I could have said this for food is I'm going to just go with coffee, good coffee. Um, I uh, have become a, a coffee person over the years and I just want some good Guatemalan, Ethiopian, uh, some nice honey washed, whatever, whatever process you want. Uh, I'd like some good coffee in my, my, my eternal crypt. Right. That's gotta be fresh though. So I don't know how they're going to get it in, but <laughs> let you worry Leave that. a
0: little shoot. You know, okay. Oh, okay. The, the crypt Yeah,
1: sword, you
0: know, <laughs> it'll just drop.
1: Sorry, you know, I, did, some, I didn't get the schemata of how this crypt is uh, arranged. Yeah. So. yeah,
0: no, I think we can do that, and there'll be a supply okay. of water and. Oh, you know, that's great. There'll be whatever it is we need. If there's a pyramid, then we'll have solar panels on the top just to make sure you can heat water. <laughs> Is this Fantastic. going to be filtered? Do you put it in a cafetière? Do you put it through an, es- an espresso machine? Or? Might as
1: well just hand grind it. You know, uh, we'll we'll just go old fashioned with it. I have all the time in the world, after all, to make R- this coffee.
0: Right, right. That sounds like a great way of seeing through eternity. I like that idea. And just keep the brain cells going for yes more stories. I can see the inside of the crypt being. It's great, good story. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said,
1: when I was a kid, I wrote and didn't show it to anyone. There's no reason to think that in my eternal crypt, I won't keep writing.
0: Brilliant. I think that's a great point at which to end it. Okay. Daniel, thank you so much. This has been so much fun.
1: Oh, thank you. This This is great. Anytime. Well,
0: that was fun. I really did enjoy The Living Dead, which completes George Romero's zombie films. Next week, it's Halloween, and when the clock ticks down to the chattering hour to celebrate, I'm joined by two special guests. First up is John Carpenter alumni Nancy Loomis from Halloween 1, 2 and 3, Assault on Precinct 13 and The Fog. Then I'm joined by Courtney Gaines from the classic Stephen King, Children of the Corn. Plus, we also discussed many other films from his over 40-year career in Hollywood. See you then, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome-West, composer Kevin MacLeod.